The sermon that you are about to view is not a replacement of your participation and commitment to a local church, but we do hope it blesses you. Mark's my name. We're glad you're here. We welcome people joining us on the internet. Take your Bibles. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And today we're going to jump in on the deep end. It's probably one of the single most difficult topics I have ever spoken on. That being, how do we reconcile a God of love and grace and mercy with war? You read through Joshua, and that's where we kind of are in our Old Testament series today. We're in Joshua. A number of you are, are reading through the Bible as we study it. And I want to pause and deal with this question. How do we reconcile that? Now, I know there's Mennonite people here, and I know there's some people who are part of the military that are here. We honor each of you. I'd like to get to a place where I can raise a number of questions and the essence of the answers of those questions is in the person of Jesus. And I want to talk a little bit about how... I'm not going to answer all the questions that I have. That I have. This was one of the main issues where I almost lost my faith in university. There was a professor there. He used to be a, a professor at Vancouver Bible College. And through some horrible situations that he was in on the mission field, denied his faith. And he told me before I was done, two years, I worked under him or studied under him for two years. Um, one of his goals was that I would deny my faith. And I still have his Bible in my office. Someday. Someday. I hope I can give it to him. And he'll want to read it. But until that day, I keep praying about him. But I want you to know, we're talking here about real people in real battles. This is not theory. And... And I want to start off by saying, I ain't got all the answers on this one. This is one. In fact, let's start off with Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Some of this is deep weeds, especially when you know people that have died in war or you have been wounded by that yourself. We have refugee people in our church. There's many people that have dealt with stuff. What is going on with this? Marcion said, well, let's just obliterate anything to do in the Old Testament with war. Get rid of it. No, no, no. We're not, we're not doing that whole stuff. Because we believe this is the Bible, Old and New Testament. We believe the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Now, just because it doesn't make sense to us doesn't mean it's right or wrong. But stay with me on this. I'm going to push hard on a couple of issues that I think are very important for us. So, let's start with the most, we're talking about a difficult passage. Let's talk about one of the worst, or sorry, probably just to say one of the passages. Deuteronomy chapter 7, please. Uh, page 179. In respect to what we're reading today, please stand starting in verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many of the nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, 
seven larger nations and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your, your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me. They will serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against them and they will be quickly destroyed. This is what you are to do. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah pole. Burn the idols in the fire. For you are the people of holiness to the Lord. For you the Lord your God. You are um, the Lord your God has chosen of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. You to be his people. His treasured possession. Over to verse 16. You must destroy all these people. The Lord has given uh, over to you. Do not look on them with pity, do not serve their gods, or they will be a snare to you. Teach us what this means, Lord. May we understand again, anew and afresh, your grace and your mercy and your justice. But this is deep, and so we pray that you would help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. A few non-negotiables as we, as we wade into this. Number one, evil is evil. It's real. It's evil. The opposite spectrum, God is good. Very good, beyond what we will ever understand. God is also sovereign. God is also just. And we're going to try to put those together today as we look at this. A couple of other thoughts. He's, I mentioned there's no division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's who he is. And his character of love for the people have not changed. So I'm thankful as we go on, just, just, just to say some of this stuff that we'll be talking about today came from uh, conversations with Pastor David and Pastor Sam talking to me about stuff. Both of them gave me a book. Uh, Sam gave me the book called Fight by Sprinkle. It's a great book if you, if you want to get one. Another one that was given to me by David by uh, Christopher Wright is The God I Don't Understand. He's got two chapters in there that are just zingers. And I got some information from Ortberg and from Stanley and pulled all of that together. And, and this was one of the most difficult weeks to study this stuff. But I think I have something that I think will point to Jesus and to help us. So some fundamental observations of war. Number one, you need to understand the term holy war. It is not in the Bible. That's the point. People have said to you, as they have said to me, well, holy war is in the Bible. Show me. It's not in the Bible. War is never God's primary desire. However, in the Old Testament, there are times that God has called his people to go to war. And by going to war, he gave them parameters. That's critical for you and I to understand. For Israel to fight, they are not to fight like pagans. They are to fight correctly. And we'll talk about that. There is violence in the Old Testament that we don't understand. All of the gods of the Old Testament, there's a violent twist to them. Not with Yahweh. Yahweh is a God of love and mercy and grace. And yet he pulls all of these things together. Genesis chapter 6. There's, there's some things here that you've got to see. Not on there? I apologize. In Genesis 6, it talks about the earth has been corrupt. And, and God's, in God's sight, there is violence. The reason that Noah happened, that whole thing with the flood and everything else, it says God looked at the earth and it was full of violence. That was the reason. He's against violence. 
The primary dictator of brokenness in our world was violence. And for us to understand, we've got to understand the violent culture in the ancient world, which is hard for us because you and I live in a bubble. We don't get this stuff. So second point, the ancient world and culture is a culture of war. Let me, let me give you an example of that. It was as common as, as anything to go to war. Uh, let me do a word association here for you. Well, tell me the first thing you think when I g- give you a word. I'll give you the word turkey, and you think of... What was that? Thanksgiving, yes. Maybe a relative. <laughs> Let's not start another war. Okay, let me give you another one. Spring. Flowers. Warmth. Yeah. Uh, spring to an Israelite. Second Samuel, Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring... At the time when the kings went out to war. War in that day, in the spring, was like rain for Vancouver. Nobody's surprised. Everybody went to war. You raped and pillaged. You stole, you killed, you did whatever you need to do. Do you remember, maybe some of you remember, National Geographic did a television special interviewing different people from Afghanistan. And one, was, one man was showing an axe with great delight that he said he has decapitated more than 1,300 people with this one axe. And people were laughing. It's hard for us to put that into words. We're shocked by this. You see, war like polygamy, slavery, and divorce pervaded the world and that became twisted by sin. And God needed to work with us and brought us where we are at and asking us to take small steps towards his kingdom and his thought of how things need to be, his dream. And he's doing that through the Old Testament. Thirdly, God graciously uses war as a judgment for evil. The wars that God commanded his people to enter were in part an expression of his judgment on the inexpressible evil of the Canaanite culture. There's an important statement you need to see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, please. In the fourth generation, first, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, four generations from now, your descendants will come back from Egypt for the sin, get this, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God says to Abraham, there's a time when the Amorites are going to be destroyed. But it's not time yet. I want to be more gracious and merciful to the Amorites. But once the Amorites continue to blow me off and I continue to go the opposite way that I want them to go, there's going to be a time, because of my justice, I need to say as the Lord God Almighty, that's enough. No more. And he says to Abraham, it's not time yet. The time is coming. But it's not time yet. Even though God knew they wouldn't turn, he was still merciful. You want to talk about mercy and grace in the Old Testament? Here's one. And when the Amorites leave, your people will come back out of Egypt and take this land again. The Amorite culture is as evil and wicked as it gets. The depth of the Canaanite sins reflects in many places in the Old Testament. One of those practices. Let's just talk about one of them now. Any firstborn males here today? Good. In a Canaanite place, you'd all be dead. You know why? Because they believe that Molech wanted the firstborn sons to be killed. 
And so each one of you would be dead because you were a son and a firstborn. Israel honored their firstborns. Canaanites killed them with glee. We'll talk about the daughters later, but this is talking about the sons, okay? This week I thought much about the, uh, the Canaanite, uh, the, how judgment on the nation because their, their sin was so perverse and full within measure, the cup of rebellion, if you want to put it that way, and wickedness was so full and overflowing that God says, it's time, because I am just as well, to stop this. Uh, my tour guide in Israel, when it was one or first or second time I was in Israel, took me to a gravesite. It was 100 feet wide, 50 feet deep, and about 150 feet long full of the skulls of infant boys whose bodies were burned and their skulls were put there as a sacrifice place. This week I thought lots about the marching, uh, about taking Jericho. And, and, and before I would always mock the whole thing of get, going up, getting up, and they had to march around Jericho in a day and that was it. Then the seventh day they went seven times. What's that about? I think I found something. One of the authors gave me an idea. I want to tease it out. God was giving Jericho a gracious opportunity to leave the city and therefore not be killed. I always mocked what was going on with that walk around the city thing. Uh, Rahab took advantage of that. She left. She was a Canaanite. In fact, she was a Canaanite, and to show you such mercy that God has on us, God puts her in the lineage of the Messiah himself. God is for the Canaanites. He's not for their evil, but he is for the Canaanites. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10 says, if you ever need to attack a city, the first thing you need to do before you put it under, under uh, siege is to offer terms of peace. So Israel went and obeyed and offered terms of peace, and everyone who didn't think that they were uh, going to be killed or whatever else, they died there. The rest ran away. And they didn't chase them and kill them as they were running away. That's what God did in leading the people of Israel. And how people say, well, how could he do that? He gave them all kinds of time. But there is a time when justice says something. You think we've gotten better over history? I remind you of the Spanish Inquisition, Stalin's reign of terror. Nazi Germany with the uh, concentration camps. The ethnic cleansing of Bosnia. I was, I was there speaking when some of this was going on and interviewed some of the Serbian soldiers. Wow. One that gets me is Rwanda. 800,000 people murdered mostly with machetes. 90 days. The bodies were floating everywhere. What especially got me was the churches were used to places to be places to kill people. You see, there were Hutus and Tutsis, and they were of the different tribe, but they were Christians, and they would share and go in the same church. I got pictures of a, a class or a, a choir practice that was doing uh, their choir practice in the morning, and at a certain time of that practice, those that were going to kill the others were whatever the end of such and such a song they grabbed their machetes and killed the people that they sat in church with for years evil is evil and there's a time when God says to evil 
that's enough. In fact, if he doesn't say that, we'd say, what kind of a just God are we dealing with here? Hundred and eighty seven million people have died in the last century in war, mostly in tribal conflicts, or mostly because their government or leaders killed its own people. I could go on, I won't. Number four pure worship of a one and true God is behind this whole war deal. The wars recorded in the Old Testament don't just express judgment on evil. But the Canaanites have been removed from Israel's worship because if they weren't, Israel as we know it and the, the worship of God as we know him probably would be, wouldn't have survived. God knew the devotion of him was immature and fragile. So the Canaanites, even if they remained in the land, the hearts of God's people would be stolen away to false religion. And so God says they must leave. If they ran away, leave them. Let them run away. But if they stay and fight, then you have to kill them because of what we're saying here. Now, again, back to the detestable things that the Canaanites did. For those that are girls, any firstborn girls here? Yeah, you would be taken to the temple and used for temple prostitution. And that, by the way, back then was to be commended in that culture. Now, I can't get my head around this. You that are dads, and you had a boy and a girl, at least. You know, boys, they're for wrestling with and throwing off the top ropes and all that stuff. But our daughters, huh, that's different. Evil is very evil. And it was for the Canaanites. And God said, if they take over and will e even be present here, they will influence the people of Israel. And my dream for the Messiah to come, to die for the sins of everyone, will be broken. And the, the work of God and his kingdom would be totally thrashed. I think it's... Oh, let me leave it. <clears throat> This is a hiker named Aaron Ralston. Remember he got caught in a, a land, kind of a rock slide, a little bit of a rock slide, and he was in a gully, and he was pinned. His arm was pinned, remember him? And he cut his own arm off. People cutting their arms off, we think, what's wrong with you? Those people, but it's that or die? Let's say, uh, my friend, you got a gangrenous hand. We would take you to a doctor, and any doctor worth anything is going to say, oh, sorry, the hand's got to go. And we would thank him for taking your hand and saving your life. The same thing applies here. It's gangrenous. Is that a word? Didn't sound right to me. But God says there's a time when every surgeon needs to amputate. There's a time when God, a God of love and mercy, is also just, and he needs to do something. Well, the Canaanite religion, that's where it was. And when we think about war 
we have to understand this contextual stuff because it answers many of the questions that we have. Fifthly, God plays no favorites. I want you to understand this. In the Old Testament, it's clear that God had no favorites. Just as he could, not, he could use Israel as an instrument of judgment on other nations, he could also, God could also use other nations as an instrument of judge, judgment on Israel. Remember it was Babylon that destroyed him in 586? 722, the northern tribes were destroyed by Assyria. God can use other nations to also punish Israel. Because his, his people needed to learn that he was not a genie in a bottle, a secret weapon, something where, where whatever they wanted to do, he was supposed to do for them. And some people think that today. They think that the people of Israel, in whatever they do, it's always right because they're God's people. No. That's like we as Canadians always do right. We don't. And God loves us enough to draw us back. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13, please. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer was, Neither. That wasn't the question. That wasn't one of the options he was giving. But that's the truth. The angel of God that was sent there is on neither side. You see, God also is on the side of the Canaanites. If they would just quit the evil, he would be on their side. But if they won't quit the evil, he is not on their side. The real question, he loves them. He said, it is not whether they, God is on our side. It is, are we on God's side? That makes it totally different. Totally different. God fights for his people, but if we defy him, he will fight against his people with even a sword if he needs to. Joshua chapter 7. As a kid, we used to remember all the kind of little stories in the Bible. My mom used to teach me these little phrases that I always teach you. That one was, uh, uh, Achan stole the bacon at Ai. Remember Ai? They went to get Ai, and Achan was the guy's name, and somehow... He stole a bunch of things that were supposed to be destroyed. And there were some Israelites that, def that died because of that. God used the people of Ai to teach the people of Israel a great lesson. Number six, God's specific direction regarding warfare. In a chapter listing up that we read, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, talked about uh, Canaanite people and the rituals they have and, and uh, how they might draw the people of Israel away. Uh, he says this, The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way. Why didn't God like horses? Kind of funny. And other places, it doesn't just say horses, it says horses and chariots. Remember that? What's God saying? Well, I think I get a little insight if we turn to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. You think that Israel ever said, listen, we got all the horses we need, all the ponies. We got chariots. We got soldiers. Thanks, but we're okay. We'll handle this one, God. Every time they trusted in their own military might, their horses, their weapons, their soldiers, 
and not in God, they lost. Every time they trusted in God, they won. Every time. Do you know that we're not supposed to have any taxes amassing an army? Because they were supposed to trust in God. Remember the time they were supposed to attack? That, that, that It was the Amorites? And they said, okay, we're going to attack these people. And we've prayed and God has led us in doing this. Okay, let's get the worship guys. We should get the worship guys again. We should get the worship guys to go out first. They have piccolos. I'm sure they'll take them on. <laughs> they trusted God with the impossible. You know, there's lots of people in your workplace or in your schoolroom, in your neighborhood that think you're nuts because you spend time in a church service like you're doing now or you get into a small group and pray and love each other you give money you actually believe that God listens to your prayers and will speak back to you you're crazy we're crazy right and God has proven that over and over I want to turn now to some other biblical authors to just give you some things to think about. First, I want to talk about the dream of God that God has. He says, I want to pull back to have a dream of community as it was in the Genesis account of, of the garden in relationship with each other and with, each, and, and with God. So he says in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I will work and I will change your hearts. I'll write God's word on your hearts and it'll change everything. I think he did that at the first coming of Jesus, especially when the Holy Spirit was given to write, who was to live inside our hearts. And what the people of Israel wanted to happen, they were looking for Jesus to do that, but they were looking for a, a, a political and a military leader. That if only you could come, Lord, and defeat the Italians or the Romans. And God the Father said, I want to defeat sin. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 4. We will, he, will, he, the Messiah, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for all people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because they don't, know him and don't need him for war anymore. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. They thought that was the way the Messiah was supposed to be. And then Jesus showed up. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10, as well as in the New Testament. Jesus shows up riding into Jerusalem on what? A colt, a young donkey. You know, I've been in a number of cities, and in the town center they have usually one or two generals. And what are they riding? Huge horses. Talking about power mighty what was done and all the rest of that stuff Jesus comes on a donkey it's kind of like wanting to be one of the hell's angels but you got a moped <laughs> I got a friend of mine that has a moped every time I can get a dig in with him the Lord is glad <laughs> Jesus doesn't come in on a stallion he is a humble example of what it is to be a God-man. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. 
For unto us a child is born. We sing this or sing and talk about this at Christmas. For unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom is a place where everything that is chaotic is gone. There's order, there's love, nothing is twisted. There is grace. Wow. And the angel said when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, unto earth, peace. Violence and force don't work to transplant or transform the human hearts back to God's dream. So Jesus came as a humble and gentle child of common Jewish people. He lived his life as an example. He gave his life as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He offers forgiveness and the ability for everyone, even the Canaanites, to start again. What a God. Jesus balanced peace and justice. Matthew chapter 5, if someone turns to you and slaps you on the one cheek, turn the other one. If one wants your coat, give him your shirt, give him your coat also. Live peacefully, Jesus is saying. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't always live peacefully because remember he took that little cord and, built, and, and he beat people until they left? Remember the religious leaders were, were uh, he said they were, they were making money and changing money in the temple? Well, actually they weren't exactly doing that. But what they did is that whole program of of uh, the sacrificial system, the, the animals were way down kind of in a valley. And if you come to Israel with me, I'll show you all this, in a valley. And the religious leaders took them out of that and put them right in on the Temple Mount in a certain area called the Gentile area. Because who gives a rip about Can the Canaanites? We don't even care if they're alive. Jesus said, I do. You have hindered the walk of the Canaanites on my holy mountain, Jesus says, and for that I will take out a rope. Interesting. For my people will be called by my name, and my house will be a house of prayer for all people. And the religious leaders didn't want all people. They didn't want Gentiles there. Amazing. Paul's teaching. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to walk you through something here. I want you to be able to study this later. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. I love the way he says that. Live at peace. Some people will never live at peace with you and I because we love Jesus. That's not our problem. But it says, as, long, as far as it depends on you. Now, we have some decisions to make. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. 
But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you heap burning coals on their heads. Remember what that means? The coal fire was what was, it was used in the Abrahamic covenant. God drew, drew Abraham to himself. These people need to see your works, how you do your life, and be drawn to, to a relationship with God because of how we do our life, a life of peace. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what shall we do? Psalm 34, 14 says we need to pursue peace. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And if you look at the construction of the words there, it means we need to aggressively go after peace so the result will be peace and shalom. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and then 2 Timothy chapter 4. Fight the good fight of faith. There is a good fight that he calls us to fight. And I don't care how old you are, you need to get in the fight. Some people say, well, you know, I'm retired now. Get in the fight. There's a good fight and a bad fight. Some people would rather fight over the color of carpet in the church. Nyet. We're not interested in fighting over that. And we're not interested in fighting over people over position or power. We fight the good fight of, of faith. Second, Second Timothy 4, please. I have fought the good faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There's Paul who did it right as our example. I'm asking today that you get in the fight. And don't coast. And don't sit around and just say, well, I'm supposed to be peaceful, which is un, un, uh, uninvolved. No. Be aggressive. Psalm 34, 14. That peace may abound. I don't know what's going on with this thing. I'd like to throw it as far as I could, but I won't. I walked into David's office. I love going to David's office at times when we make decisions and stuff, and he kind of pushes his chair back, and I pace up and down and, and think together. And I was doing this, and every once in a while, I'd look out the, the, the window that he had there that all those guys have, and it, it was a few teenagers were accumulating, and I kept walking back and forth, and they get more and more and more until there's a whole bunch of them. And I said, hey, what's going on? David looked at that in one second. He said, hurry up, let's go. I mean, what do you mean, let's go? He's running down the stairs. Everybody's getting ready for a fight. Now, David knew that, and you have to ask him why he was so up on that whole area. <laughs> I, I am not saying, not saying nothing. He, I didn't have a clue. And he ripped down there, didn't ask anybody for permission, elbowed his way through the crowd to the middle of the circle and grabbed the kid that I wouldn't have put my, my money on that kid. He was going to get smacked. And David maybe knew that. Hugged this kid so that the big guy was behind and had to go through David to get to him. Powerful. I was embarrassed I didn't get involved. I thought, why? There was an opportunity for me to fight for peace. And I just didn't even clue in. David was in the fight. Are you in the fight? We need to fight for peace. We need to fight against evil. 
We need to fight for grace. We need to fight for the poor, for the single moms and dads that need help, for the kids that don't have parents. We need to get in the good fight of faith and not sit around and pretend that we're involved and politely golf clap when we see something good. Get in the fight. I don't know where I am in my notes. Be a peacemaker. Walk in peace with God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 speaks of that. Acts 1.8 says that you will be witnesses. Help people understand who Jesus is and start their walk. And in doing that, what you're doing is you're bringing eternal peace into a person's life. Wow. It's amazing. Hebrews 12.14 When we get offended, make it right. Make every effort to live at peace with all men and women and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need to make things right before they blow up. Well, they hurt me. Go and apologize anyhow. Make it right. Live as people of peace. And lastly, pray. When I pray, I get less angry over people that have either hurt me or hurt my family or whatever else. When I pray, I get perspective. God gives me perspective of what's going on sometimes in people's lives and why they're like the way they are. Sometimes I get perspective about what's really going on behind the scenes. And it makes me humble. It, I don't get angry. Maybe all of us need to be people of prayer so that we be, can become also people of peace. And when God speaks to you about getting into the fight, the right fight, and getting into that rightly, you'll be all prayed up and ready to go. But don't do that without praying. He needs to lead you in this. Let me cycle back to where I started. Evil is evil. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. And God is just. And he is sovereign. And where this all comes together and where God wins is at the cross. Where he laid all the evil on his son's body on that cross as the sacrifice for all. And then he rose Jesus from the dead. And that resurrected power has been given to you and to me. And it changes everything. When you see the Old Testament in light of the cross, it changes everything. Now, I still got questions. And you probably have more, and I've maybe stirred up some questions. But I hope that today you'll get in the good fight of faith and you'll understand how gracious and just God is in one. And you will be conduits of that to many people around you. Amen? Lord, thanks for today. As we take communion now, we pray in Jesus' name that this would be a declaration of our faith and obedience of you. So in Jesus' name we ask that you would continue to lead us now around this table. In your name we pray. Amen.